Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and we are here with the second rendition of On the Record with Jerry Truppiano, episode 310 for the production network here. So we're rocking and rolling. Um, Jerry had a great first show with the Hall of Famer. He's coming back with another Hall of Famer here. So the bar set high for his show. But before we bring Jerry on and introduce his great guest, just want to say thank you to our audience, 51,000 plus subscribers, 74 countries, grassroots to MLB, NFL, NBA front offices, everybody, uh, they've got their ear to, to our show now. Let's make sure after the show we give Gary some, Jerry some great notes, give him five stars, and that way we can continue to battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in sports. And iHeartRadio knows they got the right podcast network. Uh, with that, Jerry, welcome back to your show, and I want you to let you get going with your guest. Thank you, Dave. And, and five stars for the guest uh, this time around once again. Warren Moon, a pro football Hall of Famer in two countries, NFL Hall of Famer and a Hall of Famer in the Canadian Football League. And Warren, I, I appreciate you joining us. I know you're retired, but I know you're not you're not inactive. You're doing something, aren't you? <laughs> oh yeah. I'm probably busier now than uh, I was when I was playing, you know, because when when you played, you know that six or seven months of the year that you had to devote to football. You couldn't do much else. Well, I don't have that problem anymore. And then uh, I stay pretty busy the rest of those five months, too. So uh, I'm kind of semi-retired, but uh, I've never been one to sit back and, and do nothing. So, yeah, I'm involved in a lot of different projects and really loving life right now. So what are you doing? Well, I've got a foundation that... Uh, it's called the Brothers in Arms, and Andre Ware, who uh, you know won the Heisman Trophy, and Vince Young, who's a college football Hall of Famer, and we all come from single mom homes, and we were all from the Houston area as far as playing our football, and uh, we all were involved in sports. So that's the type of scholarships that we're looking for in, in kids in high school that come from single mom homes that are involved in sports that have the grades and the desire to go to college. And we try and provide that uh, financial assistance for them. And it's been a very successful program for us the last three years. We're continuing to keep building on it. And uh, we just had a, just sent another class off of five kids to uh, different colleges around the country about a month ago when school started. And looking forward to raising more money for next year so we can send another crop. I'm glad you mentioned your mother. You had to grow up in a hurry, didn't you? I did. Um, I was a lot... A lot more mature than most of the kids my age, just because of some of the responsibilities, you know, put on me at a very young age. My dad passed away when I was seven years old, and uh, I kind of became the man of the house for a household that had my mom and and six sisters. So, uh, did I did you ever get to use the bathroom? <laughs> I knew I was smart enough at a very young age to know I had to get up very early before everybody else and get all that done before they got up. Otherwise, it was going to be impossible. If there was ever a day I ever overslept, I was in bad shape as far as getting myself ready for, for wherever I had to go. So you had to grow up in a hurry, and you, and your mom uh, made made you do what you had to do, right? She did. She taught me all the, the different things that uh, it would take for me to take care of myself as far as learning how to cook, you know, keeping my house really clean because she was immaculately clean. Uh, she was kind of OCD as far as... And you can imagine having six kids in, in a house, uh, in a two-bedroom house. So everything had a place for it. And and uh, 
we always knew that we had to put things away. And if we didn't, we were going to hear her wrath. And I'm that way right now. You know, I, I, I won't, I won't put a, a glass on the sink or anything like that. Everything has a place for it. And, and, uh, I'm a little OCD because of, uh, growing up around her. Uh, she taught me how to iron. She taught me how to, you know, pay bills and do all those responsible things that you're supposed to do. Now, with not having a dad, I didn't uh, know how to do anything as far as mechanical type stuff. So like when I had to raise my hood up in my car, I didn't know what I was looking at. I had no idea. But uh, as far as being able to take care of myself and, and cook and clean and all that, when I went out on my own, I could do all that just fine. She sounds like a wonderful woman. She really is, uh, Jerry. She's a strong woman, um, somebody that I have tremendous respect for because she didn't she didn't just fold up her tent when I, when her dad, my dad passed away and, and she's, you know, left there with seven children. And she uh, she went back to school. She became a, a, a nurse. Uh, you know, she'd work double shifts in order to, you know, keep us keep us going as far as having enough hot food on the table and clean clothes on our backs. I, I never really felt like I was poor, uh, even though we didn't have a ton. And um I just watched the way she handled that whole situation. And I think it really helped me as far as all the adversity I was going to deal with later on in my life, trying to play quarterback, uh, watching her, it gave me tremendous strength and, and taught me how to not quit because she didn't. Was she one of the driving forces to get you involved in sports? No question about it. You know, being around all those women every day, all day, she, she wanted me to be around more boys. She wanted me to be around more male mentors and that's one of the reasons why she got me involved in all the different sports that she did, not just football. I was a baseball player. I played basketball. Um, and uh, baseball was probably my best sport growing up, but wasn't wasn't fast enough for me. But uh, she made tremendous sacrifices for me because, you know, in playing sports, you got to have equipment. You got to have the shoes. You got to have the uh, admission fees to play all those different things. So she she made those things happen. And like I said, we didn't have a lot, but somehow, some way, my mom was able to make those things happen for me. And and um, it provided me that that environment that she wanted for me to be around other boys, to be competitive, to to be around other men. And, uh, you know, and, and I have a lot of um, a, a lot of men role models in my life growing up. And most of them were my coaches. Once you got involved in sports, who was it who first noticed that Hey, this kid has a chance to, to do something special. You know, I played Pop Warner football uh, when I was in Los Angeles. I started when I was 10 years old. And and uh, my first year, I played uh, linebacker and wingback, believe it or not, because we played, we ran the wing tee, so we didn't throw the football very much. We had a, a young quarterback, a guy by the name of Barry Granberry, I'll never forget him, that could run, you know, he could run as fast as any kid I've ever seen. And you know, we just snapped the ball to him and let him run it. Or we had a couple other guys that were really, really fast too. And that's what you ran in the, in the, in the, uh, the wing tee. But the next year when I went up a, a level, they were throwing the ball and the coaches saw that I really had a good arm. And, uh, that's when I got put at quarterback when I was 11 years old and, uh, never looked back since. So did you have that confidence at the age of 11? I really did, and and I had that maturity that I that I think it takes for to be a quarterback. Um, I was one of those guys in my neighborhood, you know. I was one that organized all of our our uh, 
our street games when we played, whatever sport it was, baseball, you know, football or basketball. Uh, so I had that in me already. And, and I was already, you know, throwing the ball when we played against different streets and stuff like that. But uh, when I played Pop Warner that first year, I didn't throw the ball a lot. Um, but then that next year, you know, once I started playing quarterback, it became pretty natural to me because I had been doing it for a couple of years, you know, just in my own neighborhood with all the other guys that were playing at the same park as me. How was how was the high school career? High school was shaky in the beginning. Uh, you know, I had a coach that really didn't believe too much in me and didn't believe too much in, in uh, you know, playing an African-American. But uh, I didn't – I was third string, believe it or not, on my 10th grade sophomore team. And the only time I really played was when we were behind. At the end of a ball game, we had this special formation that it was like a spread formation, and they'd put me in and just let me throw the ball all around. Uh other than that, I never really played much. So the, the next year when I'm working out on the track um, in the offseason, the, the varsity coach who had been, I guess, watching me all that time and saw how I handled everything, he, he came up to me and put his arm around me and said, you know, Warren, you're going to be my uh, my starting quarterback for the varsity next year. And and just a, a light just went off in me right then. And uh, my, my workouts got more intense. Uh, I was just so focused and – and didn't want to let him down because of the decision he was making to make me his guy. So that from then on, my high school career was really good. I, you know, I finished, I was the uh, player of the year in my conference. I was all West side. I was all city. I made a couple all American teams. I had a really good um, high school career. Sometimes that's all you need, that arm around the shoulder and a little, little somebody believing in you. That's sometimes all you need. It really is, Jerry, and that's one of the reasons why I do some of the things I do off the field because there's a lot of kids out there that have a tremendous ability and, and uh, just don't have that confidence or don't feel like there's anybody that really believes in them. And, and I'm a true uh, I'm a true believer of that, that if somebody does take a little bit of time and you, you never know what type of impact you're going to have on, on a young person. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I do a lot of the things that I do because I know people had an impact on me. And we're talking about a different era, of course, when you were coming up. As an African-American quarterback, what was the recruiting like for college? It was uh, difficult because I got recruited mainly by schools that ran the football and ran the option, like the wishbone back then and the veer. And uh, But I was a thrower. I could throw the football with anybody. And uh, a lot of the schools like Stanford and Cal, which is where I wanted to go in the Pac-10, at, at that time the Pac-8, um, they wouldn't recruit me as a quarterback. And uh, a lot of other schools wanted to recruit me and change my position. They wanted to make me a defensive back or a wide receiver. And that's just not something I was willing to do, something that I didn't want to do. And I had never played those positions before. So I felt like I was a quarterback and had proved it at every level that I had played at so far. And I thought that I deserved an opportunity to, to play at a big time school um, and get that opportunity. But like I said, it was, it was very tough getting recruited by those types of schools. So I, that's why I decided to go to junior college. I had actually committed to go to Arizona State when Frank Cush was there. And they ended up signing the two top quarterbacks in the country at that time. So they were considered. Um, kid by the name of Dennis Sproul and another guy by the name of Bruce Hardy who ended up being a tight end. And uh, 
they told me that they were going to honor my scholarship, but change my position. And I told them, no, thank you. And I decommitted. And that's, that's when I decided to go to junior college for a year, just to uh, see if I could improve my offers. But then came the University of Washington, huh? Yeah, they were recruiting my receiver because the year I went there, I had a sophomore receiver, Leon Garrett, who was, you know, one of the best receivers in the country. And they were recruiting him. And of course, they would see me on film throwing the football to him. So they were interested in me. But my junior college coach at that time would not allow them to recruit me because he wanted me to stay two years like you'd normally do at a junior college. And I didn't want to go to the junior college in the first place. But uh, I also only wanted to stay there a year. And, I, you know, I was a state player of the year that first year. Um, and I just felt like I didn't – there was nothing else for me to do. I, there was nowhere else for me to go. So I, I was ready to leave. And finally I had a, a talk with him. And I, I said, look, I didn't want to come here in the first place, but I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to do that. But now I'm ready to go. And um, I wish you would allow these – schools to come in here and, and recruit me because he was telling them if he if anybody came on campus to recruit me he wasn't going to allow them to recruit any of his other players which I thought was a little bit unfair but that's kind of the way you know some people are um I'll tell you a quick story on, on how I get, had to get recruited by some schools I had a part-time job in the uh athletic department and my job was to walk around and, you know, make sure everything was okay in the evening. And I had keys to the locker room, keys to the weight room, you know, keys to everything. I also had keys to the film library. <laughs> so I would go in the film library and send off tape. At that time, it was film to schools that I wanted to recruit me. They would send it back to me after they looked at it at my home, at my home and then I would get it back into the film library before anybody ever knew it was gone. So that's how I started to get recruited by people. And then after I had the um, conversation with him, he finally decided to let people start recruiting me. And I ended up choosing the University of Washington because they were going to allow me to play quarterback. They thought I could compete right away, even though they had a fifth-year senior uh, who was who was their starter from the year before. And I wanted to go wherever I could probably play the fastest because I had already wasted a year being in junior college. And you had success at Washington all the way to your senior year uh, in the Rose Bowl, right? I did. You know, I was Pac-8 player of the year. I was, you know, Rose Bowl's most valuable player. But, you know, when it, it came around to, to, to NFL teams scouting me I just I wasn't getting a lot of uh, I wouldn't get a lot of notice to play quarterback again they wanted to change my position and I wasn't going to have it and um the same things in my mind is I had I had I had really excelled at every level I played the game whether it was Pop Warner high school junior college or college and I'm like why can't I get a chance to play pro ball if I'm not good enough cut me you know but at least, at least draft me or something like that as a quarterback. So the Canadian Football League at the same time was was very interested in me. Um, Hugh Campbell, who was their head coach, who played at Washington State, he felt like I could be a star up there. He felt like I could be a star in the NFL, and he didn't understand why they weren't giving me more of a look. But he said, "We'll take you, and, and we'll, um, you know, we'll pay you like you know we'd pay about a second round draft pick in the NFL and." And uh, you'll play quarterback for sure. So they gave me all the insurances that I wanted. But, you know, in the back of my mind, I my, my goals and dreams were to play in the NFL. 
And it was a big decision I had to make whether I wanted to give that up or not because they had to have an answer six weeks prior to the NFL draft because their season started early. So uh, I made that decision and uh, decided to go to Canada just because I, I felt like I could play quarterback and I didn't want anybody to tell me that I couldn't. Yeah, you could play quarterback. You won five Grey Cup championships with Edmonton up in the Canadian Football League. Five, five consecutive championships, if I remember. Yeah, we had a really good team that I went to, and you know, a veteran team, and and uh, it, it was a great experience for me. And I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because as I look back at it, there hasn't been a pro team in any sport that has won five championships in a row, and. Uh, so we can we can always say we were a part of that. And um, my first son was born in Canada. Uh, I just have great memories of being up there. It's just when you're winning games like that, yeah, there were times when I was homesick. There were times when I felt like, why am I not getting a chance to play in the NFL if I'm watching, you know, watching games on TV, thinking that I could be doing the same thing as other guys that I was looking at. But I also was happy where I was because I was – you know, getting a great opportunity to play with a great organization and and win a bunch of games. So winning seems to, you know, kind of s- solve some things that might be disappointing in your life. Um, but it, still in the back of my mind, I, I kept saying it was just something that was gnawing at me that, you know, how good am I and, and can I play with these guys? Because until you, until you play with the best, you don't know, you know, how good you are. And, uh, that's the only thing that brought me back to the NFL because I thought at one point I was going to stay up there my whole career. I was enjoying it so much. Yeah. And sometimes dreams do come true. As you mentioned, you get to the, to the NFL. What was, you You didn't have the big, the big drive, I guess, as we, we talked about in, in college recruiting, but I, I think there was a, a, a pretty good push around the NFL to grab you uh, when you were ready to come back across the border. Yeah, my attorney, Lee Steinberg, really orchestrated a um, a great free agency plan because there was no free agency at that time, and I was a true free agent because I wasn't drafted. Um, I'm surprised the team didn't at least draft me to keep my rights, and that just shows you the mindset of people back then. They could have drafted me in the twelfth round. There was twelve rounds at that time, just to keep my uh, just to keep my rights, but nobody did, which I was ecstatic about. And I became a free agent. So there was about seven teams that really wanted me uh, badly coming out of Canada. And and we went and visited all those teams and just kind of created a buzz. And and uh, the Houston Oilers were one of those, along with the uh, Seattle Seahawks, which is where I was living in the offseason and had gone to school in Seattle. So those were the, it came down to those two uh, organizations. And uh, I decided to come to Houston mainly because my – Canadian Football League coach was hired there, Hugh Campbell, and uh, I felt like that would be a great, easier transition for me. And then the way they structured my contract was was um, much better financially for me than than the Seahawks did. The Seahawks were a better football team because uh, I think the Oilers were two and fourteen the year I came there. Yes, they were. And uh, you know, Seattle had gone deep into the playoffs the year before. I could, I didn't even know. I couldn't even understand why they wanted a quarterback because uh, Dave Craig was their quarterback and had done a pretty good job for them. So I ended up going to Houston just because it reminded me a lot of the situation when I went to the, when I went to the University of Washington. They were two and nine the year I, I came to the University of Washington, and I wanted to be part of something and watch it grow. Watch it grow, and uh, that's what I wa- wanted to do when I went to Houston: be a part of something that 
we could grow into possibly a you know a championship football team. What about the transition from the CFL to the to the NFL and and the speed of the game was it dramatic? There's no question there were more good players at every position um, than there were in Canada. But for me, the big transition was getting used to your new teammates and getting used to, uh, you know, a new offense. As far as the way the games were played, yeah, the Canadian League was a totally different game than the NFL game, um, the rules and everything. But I had played that all my life, so that wasn't a big transition for me to go back to that. It was a bigger transition when I went up there trying to learn that that style of football and also uh, the way the game is played because your, your your strategy of the way you attack teams is totally different with only three downs as compared to four. Uh, but the NFL, to me, was more learning my teammates, learning their personalities, learning what buttons you could push and not push, you know, learning your your – your wide receivers and what their strengths were and their weaknesses and, and then learning a new offense. So all of that was, was a big transition for me along with moving a family that had, you know, I had three kids at that time and making sure they were, they were set and, uh, and comfortable where we were going to live and all those different things. So it it was a huge transition to to come back there, but it was something I wanted to do and uh, we made it happen. I mentioned you're a Hall of Famer, both in the Canadian Football League and the NFL. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say, once you came to the NFL, you had a dramatic, a historical impact on the game. And I'm thinking twofold. Let me start with the first one being, you threw the football so much. I I think that was was kind of maybe some of the impetus of, of the game we see today as they throw the football a lot. Yeah, I like to think that, you know, the things we did in Houston, um, especially later into my career there when we when we started to run the red gun and then all of a sudden the, the, the true run and shoot, uh, we started spreading it out and, and throwing the football a lot. And um, the things you see today on what teams are doing were things we were doing way back in 19, you know, 88, 89, 90. Um, and everybody thought – you know, our run and shoot offense was kind of a gimmick back then, uh, but we won with it. And uh, now you see teams using all the same pass concepts, all those different things. The biggest difference is the tight ends that they have in today's football are a little bit more hybrid. And we didn't have a tight end on our roster. It was all wide receivers where you can still run these spread offenses today, but these these uh, tight ends are more like wide receivers because of their speed and that, that you don't have to take them off the field. And you can run the football with a tight end at the, you know, next to the tackle, or you can split him out and put him in the slot. You can put him out wide. There's a lot of different things you can do because of the versatility of that position. Otherwise, everything they're doing passing wise, the back shoulder throws, all those different things we were doing back in 1990. So I like to think I was a, a little bit of, you know, part of what's going on t- today's football. When we were together with the Oilers, your your main receivers were Drew Hill and Ernest Gibbons, the Whiteouts. How did how did it, or how long did it take to develop a, a rapport with those guys? You know, we worked a lot uh, in the off season, which helped. Uh, I, I I had a much better rapport 
with Drew than I did with Ernest because Ernest had a little bit more shake and bake to his game, and and you had to really learn his uh, his body his body language. Where Drew was a little bit more cookie cutter, and he was he was going to run the route and and you know really accelerate up into the DB, get him in a panic, and then he could snap it off wh- whichever way he did, and that that was so much easier for me to read. Then sometimes Ernest would get up there and, you know, do some of his shake and bake type stuff. And I didn't know which ways he was going sometimes because everything had an adjustment. You could go either in, you could go out, you could go straight through, you could hook it up depending on how the, the defense played you. So it took me a little bit longer with Drew, I mean, with, with Ernest. Um, and then I had big Haywood Jeffries on the outside, which, yeah. um, you know, he was a he was a really good receiver when he was motivated. He, there wasn't many people that could stop him when he was ready to play. Now, the, the uh, other area where I, I think you've really had an impact on the game is we see so many now African-American quarterbacks in the NFL. And your, and your dedication and belief in yourself to play the position and then going on to the NFL and becoming a pro football Hall of Famer, I, I, I think helped in that area to bring it to bring other African-American quarterbacks into play and, and opening the door for them. Yeah. You know, Jerry, I think uh, that's one of the things I'm most proud of um, from my days playing the game was the, the, the impact that I was able to make on the game as far as making change at, at this position, uh, because I know the, I knew the difficulty I had trying to get into the league, playing the position. Um, I know Doug Williams was, was instrumental in that as well, winning a Super Bowl in 1988. Uh, Randall Cunningham came in shortly after me and the way he played during the time that he played as well. So the three of us, I think, really had a huge impact on what what teams and what owners thought about African-American quarterbacks because we played at a very high level. And I think it's it really kind of changed the mindset of, of a lot of those owners and general managers that – these guys can play the game at a high level and let's start drafting more of them and let's start giving more of them a, a look, a serious look at playing quarterback. And, you know, this year, I think there were 14 African-American quarterbacks that started on opening day in the NFL. And that's the most ever. And that that's something that really makes me proud. It took a while for it to happen, but here we are. And in the last year in the Super Bowl, two African-Americans started in the Super Bowl, you know, Patrick Mahomes and, and Jalen Hurts. So, a lot of progress has been made at that position. Can you can you tell the story about Marlon Briscoe? It's one of the most unfair stories I think we've we've ever had in pro football. Yeah, Marlon was a a quarterback um, that went to the Denver Broncos of the AFL, and he was third string there. And there was a game where their first two quarterbacks got hurt in the ball game. They put Marlon in the ball game. And he ends up uh, you know, having a really good game. I forgot what his numbers were, but he ended up setting a rookie touchdown record for the uh, Denver Broncos that year that still stands today. I think he threw like 14 touchdowns in the last you know, eight games of the season. That's when he came in. And then the next season, he wasn't even invited back to uh, be a part of the football team. He was waived, and he ended up having to go to the to – um, Buffalo Bills and, and he had his position switched to uh, to wide receiver. So it just shows you how difficult it was back in those days, no matter you know how successful you were. There was just a mindset there that some people just didn't want African-American quarterbacks playing. And uh, 
that was the case uh, at Denver. I think the coach was Lou Saban at the time, and uh, he did not want him back that next season. Well, you, you helped open the door, and I know you're very proud of that. Now, we mentioned you, you you started with the Oilers in the NFL, but you went on to Minnesota, then over to Seattle and wound up in, in Kansas City. At the pro level, the, the NFL level, anybody have a big impact on you as far as a coach? Um, I think Kevin Gilbride had a huge impact on me um, at, when I was at Houston, our offensive coordinator. Uh, we, we became really close. We were actually neighbors. He only lived like right down the, down the street from me. And, uh, we had a really close relationship. So we really understood each other. Well, uh, June Jones came in and really helped improve my, um, my confidence because my confidence was kind of down those after those first two years, because I didn't feel like they were using me properly as far as what my strengths were. Uh, in the in that offense, and then when June came in as my quarterback coach, and and uh, we changed the offense to a little bit more of a West Coast style, that's when I started to really take off uh, as a player. And June had a lot to do with that. And um, then playing with Denny Green, uh, he was a a really great motivator. Uh, I loved playing for him in Minnesota. Um, you know, he he was a he was he came from the Bill Walsh system, so. He was a guy that wasn't going to beat you up in practice every day. He wanted guys to be fresh by game time, which was great for me because that time, at the time I went there, I was like 37 years old, and I didn't need to be, you know, pushed too hard in practice throughout the week. I wanted to be fresh and ready to play on Sunday, so that fit right in with what I was looking for. And I just loved how, how much of a disciplinarian he was for, to the football team. He was a he was an easy guy to talk to with everybody, but he didn't take any crap, and I love that about him. Now I think a lot of football fans know that Tom Brady played until he was forty five, but you played until you were forty four. You hung in there pretty good. You know I did, and and um, I really took good care of myself. I had some injuries later in my career that that once you get hurt when you're a certain age, then people are looking to put you out the pasture. And that's what happened with me when I uh, left Minnesota. I had a, I had a bad ankle sprain uh, my third year there. I had gone to two Pro Bowls the year before that, the two years before that. But the third year, I had a really bad ankle sprain that I tried to play with. It was a high ankle sprain. And instead of me giving it the time that it, that it took to heal, I kept trying to play on it and it just got worse. And then it got to a point where I couldn't even move, and I got replaced by uh, Brad Johnson and uh, really never got my job back because uh, Brad, his contract was up, and they had to make a decision of, you know, what they were going to do with him as a starter. So I, got ex- I was expendable there because of my age and that. And so I went on to Seattle, and they gave me an opportunity there, and I go there and Again, go to another Pro Bowl and do well, but then I broke my ribs the second year and, again, tried to play with them. I was getting shot up in practice every day just to go out and practice And because I knew once you get hurt at a certain age, they're looking to, to get rid of you, especially if you're making good money, and, and I was at that stage in my career. But, uh, you know, I had a, a good year and a half there, and, and I still wanted to play. I knew I could still play at a high level. That's why I went to Kansas City, but – um, just never really got a chance to play much there because Elvis Gerback, uh, he had his best year 
his best two years ever, the two years that I was there, and, and I just didn't get on the field very much. So I knew it was time to me to to, uh, to hang it up then because uh, when you're not playing, you, you just don't feel a part of everything. I was a you know I was a mentor to a lot of the young guys and and created some relationships that way, but. You know, I had been a starter all my all my career, and I and I wanted to continue to be one. And if I wasn't going to be that, it was time for me to move on. I think a lot of times people put labels on athletes. I, I don't want to do that here with you, but I, I've got a couple of words that I think describe you, and I'll see if you agree or disagree. Motivation and work ethic. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think resiliency. Um, because no matter what people told me or no matter what doors people closed in my face, uh, I was going to I was going to find a way to either knock that door down or or. Uh, you know, not let that situation get me down and keep moving forward. And again, I go back to my mother when I when I when I talk about that, that I learned that from her. There's no question in my mind that I'm sure that's where I got that determination from was her. And I think I remember a conversation we had once, and, and it was about your mother. And you, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you wanted to leave the University of Washington, and she told you to stick stick in there. She did, and you know, it got to a point where I just I didn't want to run on the field um, because every time I ran out there, no matter what the score was in the game, all all I heard was booze, and and um, I just didn't want to go through that another year after my junior year, so. Uh, I talked to her about possibly transferring and she told me that, you know, you made a decision to go up there. Um, I pretty much, pretty much put it in your hands of where you wanted to go to school and you could go somewhere else and the same thing can happen just because of, of, of the, uh, the time that we live in. So you, you can't keep running away from, from what's, uh, you know, the, might be, might be a, a tough, difficult situation so you need to stay there and hang in there and, and hopefully things will improve because like she said, the same thing could happen if I went somewhere else. In our closing minutes, can you talk about when you got the call for the Hall of Fame, what that was like and and what was your speech like and and can you wrap it all up in that? You know, it was a really weird situation for the uh, for the Hall of Fame. You know, I'm in Detroit because that's where the Super Bowl was being played, and that's where they make the announcement is wherever the Super Bowl is. And I'm I'm covering uh, the Seattle Seahawks because they were in the in the uh, Super Bowl against uh, Pittsburgh, and I, I'm doing the broadcast. So we're there a week early with the team, you know, getting ready for the game. And I also had uh, had um, agreed to do a, a football clinic on Saturday afternoon. I wanted to do anything I could on Saturday, which is the day they were going to make the announcements, uh, just to kind of keep my mind doing something else, not thinking about it and, and, and just waiting by the telephone. Because at that time people said I had a chance maybe to be a first ballot guy. I wasn't really sure. Uh, I knew that I didn't have a Super Bowl in my belt or anything like that. So I wasn't sure if it was going to happen for me or not. So, uh, John McClain, who was my presenter in the selection committee, called me on the phone and said, Warren, you know, I think you need to come downtown because there's a great chance you're going to be selected. And I'm like, John, what if that doesn't happen? I don't want to be down there and, and it doesn't happen. I'll be embarrassed. And uh, he's like, no, I really think you should hit this way because uh, you, 
we're down to the finals. I think it was final eight and you're in there. And so my wife kind of talked me into doing it. And we got in the car and we started driving downtown towards the, uh, the main hotel for the NFL. And it's kind of snowing and sleeting outside on the highway in, in Detroit. And all of a sudden I get a phone call in the, and I thought it was, I didn't know what the phone call was, but I, I answered the phone and it was a lady from the NFL that said she had gotten me these tailgate party passes that I, I wanted for some friends of mine that were coming in for the game. And I'm like, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. But I got to get off the phone. And she's like, well, I also want to congratulate you on being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, it's one across the ticker tape on the on the TV right now that you, you were one of the ones selected. I'm like, nobody's told me that. So I, I don't know what you're talking about. But let me get off the phone. And as soon as yeah. I hung up, phone rang again. And that was the call that I got. And uh, man. You're talking about an emotional moment. I, I had to pull my car over to the side of the road on the freeway, and I just was bawling like like a, a little baby. I mean, I, I just couldn't control it. Uh, you know, Every emotion that I had gone through throughout all those different levels of people telling me no, and all I thought about was all the guys who didn't get a chance to, to play quarterback. They, they always wanted to. I thought about the Marlon Briscoes and all those different things all just kind of came flowing out of me at that particular moment. But it was one of the most emotional moments in my, in my life. Warren Moon, a NFL Hall of Fame quarterback and a Hall of Fame guy. Warren, thanks for the time. Jerry, thanks for having me. Um, you know, we've been on each other a long time, and uh, I, I, I'm really glad I was able to do this show with you today. Thank Good luck you to see you in the future, man. Thank you so much. Dave D'Agostino, close us out. Thanks so much, Jerry and Warren. Incredible interview. I've got one quick question for you. Um, we have a big contingency of youth in our audience. You mentioned how when you were 11 years old, you're organizing games, playing your street against the next street over. We don't see kids doing free play much anymore. In fact, I just read an article, seven minutes is the average time that a kid is involved with free play in a week nowadays. How much of that uh, can you attribute to your leadership as a young man? as a quarterback and then as a leader in your community now? There's no question. All those things helped me. Um, the interaction that I had with young kids, being able to get out every day and, and exercise, which a lot of kids don't get today. Even if I had never made it as a professional or went to college or whatever, I was getting exercise as a young, as a young kid and, and kids today need that. So many of them are or stuck on their phones in front of TV screens, computer screens, and they're, they're just not getting the um, the exercise that they need. That's why I think we have an obesity problem in this country. So I, I um, would stress that all kids get out and do as much as they can exercise-wise. Get involved in sports, whether it's in your neighborhood or in your local park or whatever, and uh, just get the exercise that you need. Because it's been proven that if you're involved in sports, I think you're going to be successful in life uh, somewhere down the line just because of the things, the, all the other things that you learn from sports besides just playing. Beautifully said. Uh, Jerry, wonderful interview. You're, you're the Thank best you. at doing this. Uh, I've gotten better at listening to you do two interviews uh, the last two weeks. So I appreciate that. Warren, thank, thank you. you so much for your time. Uh, two-time Hall of Famer. We're very fortunate to have you on. Great message to the kids out there and to our audience 50,000 plus subscribers, 74 countries. Thank you for supporting us in our movement to iHeartRadio. Make sure you give 
this episode five stars. Write some great comments underneath so we can battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in sports. Episode 310 on the network, Real Voices of the Game Productions. Episode two on the record with Jerry Trupiano. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much, guys.